Welcome to Hub Headlines. Today's program features the best commentary and analysis published in the Hub for February 29th. Up first is Scott Taman writing on the ArriveCan fiasco, what the previous sponsorship scandal tells us, and what needs to change. As a former federal public servant, including time in the Canadian Border Services Agency and previously on the post-sponsorship scandal response, I've closely followed media reporting and now the Auditor General's report on the development and implementation of the ArriveCon mobile application. I'm appalled by what we've learned but would caution politicians from over-responding with more rules and red tape that risk slowing the system down without necessarily solving any inherent problems. Let's start with a recap of the lowlights of the AG's findings, including the project's final cost, which was estimated at $59.5 million, 750 times the original estimate of $800,000, though the Auditor General noted that the lack of clear record-keeping means the true cost could be higher or lower. 18% of invoices submitted by contractors did not provide enough information to determine whether they were expenses related to ArriveCan or another information technology, and the average per diem cost for the ArriveCan external resources was estimated at $1,090, nearly double the average daily cost for equivalent IT positions in the Government of Canada. It was also reported that GC Strategies has had much a deeper relationship with the Government of Canada, including as many as 140 contracts, and including 46 untendered since 2015. The total value of these contracts has been the subject of some debate, though one estimate put it as high as $258 million. While the extent of the scandal is not yet fully known, with reports that the RCMP is also looking at the AG report and its findings, what is known so far recently led former NDP leader Thomas Mulcair to declare it the scam of the century noting we are indeed facing the first major Canadian political scandal since sponsorship and its scale risks being even greater. Even if one finds Mulcair's rhetoric a bit hyperbolic, the comparisons to the sponsorship scandal are interesting and worth some reflection. For those not fully up to speed, here's a primer. In the late 1990s, the government of Prime Minister Jean Chrétien put in place a sponsorship program to support activities to celebrate Canada, strengthen the federal presence in Quebec, and counter efforts by the Parti Québécois to promote Quebec independence. The well-intended program eventually became associated with various financial scandals. In February 2004, the AG tabled a damning report on the sponsorship program that found the following. The program operated in a weak control environment. Those responsible for managing the program broke the government's own rules in the way that they selected firms and awarded contracts. Documentation was very poor and there was little evidence or analysis to support expenditures of more than $250 million. Over $100 million of the total costs were paid to firms as production fees and commissions for little to no work done and oversight mechanisms and essential controls failed to detect, prevent, or report violations. The AG's report triggered RCMP investigations, a commission of inquiry, and ultimately contributed to the fall of the government led by Prime Minister Paul Martin in 2006. The sponsorship scandal, as it came to be known, eventually precipitated a long list of public administration reforms to ensure such a thing could never happen again. I was involved in the development and implementation of many of these operational and policy responses. The first wave of reforms was captured in a publication entitled Strengthening Public Sector Management and Overview of the Government Action Plan in 2004. In an attempt to restore accountability and trust in government, it set out several key initiatives, most of which were implemented, including various details regarding the re-establishment of the Office of the Comptroller General, compliance mechanisms, and programs that would train public sector executives. 
many of these reforms were enacted or launched under Martin's government. Following the 2006 election, the newly elected Harper government built on them with its own Federal Accountability Act, which set out various other reforms intended to prevent financial malfeasance within the government. While many of these changes were sensible and arguably justified, the growing Arrivecan scandal demonstrates that there are limits to regulating impropriety out of existence. The various legislative machinery of government, policy, and oversight changes enacted following the sponsorship scandal have proven insufficient to guarantee that this kind of breach of public trust can't happen in the 21st century. Of note, there appears at least so far to be key differences in the two scandals. The biggest is the lack of a smoking gun linking the Arrivecan fiasco to the political arm of the government. Arrivecan seems to have been initiated and overseen by public servants free from political direction. At the same time, however, both the sponsorship scandal and the Arrivecan scandal do share some common elements including glaringly poor record-keeping, sign-offs on invoices without proper documentation to verify receipt of goods or services received, millions in fees and commissions for little work done of value and failure of oversight mechanisms. While it is likely too early to come to comprehensive conclusions, I am certain that there will be calls for more rules and oversight to ensure such a mess can never happen again. In this regard, let me offer up some advice from the past. I can personally verify that 20 years ago there was active consideration and discussion of putting in place reforms to strengthen deterrence and the consequences of mismanagement, including making it an offense to fail to keep a decent record of key decisions involving large sums of taxpayer money. We'll probably hear about similar ideas again. I understand the impulse. But I think it's a mistake. You can't regulate humans, fallible as they may be, out of the government. Governing inherently comes with trade-offs, including the risk that those who populate these systems are going to screw up or break the rules in place. This is not to absolve any particular bad actors in the Arrivecan case or any others that arise in the future. Quite the opposite. It is just to say that the cost of imposing further rules, including a slower, more risk-averse, and ultimately less effective public service, isn't worth it. Worse, adding them will not even solve the core problem anyway. The legacy of this debacle should not be a bureaucracy burdened by even more ineffective and easily disregarded regulations that bring us no closer to achieving what should be our main objective, genuine, enforceable oversight of the system. Put simply, I am not convinced the system needs more rules. It needs people, particularly public service executives, to pay attention to the rules, apply them, and suffer meaningful consequences when they do not. Only with such accountability can we empower the hardworking, capable individuals and government who make up the vast majority of the federal service and ensure they can properly do their jobs. Canadians deserve nothing less. That was a commentary by Scott Taimon. He is a retired federal executive. You can find the full text of his article on our website thehub.ca. Our second essay is by Howard Anglin, writing on how the play 1979 succeeds in showing why Joe Clark failed as prime minister, how Joe Clark was portrayed in the play, and the insight this play provides. If it seems strange to review a play about Joe Clark that has already closed, it's no stranger than writing a play about Joe Clark's premiership in the first place, let alone staging it for an off-West End audience in London. Watching the breezy production of 1979 at the intimate Finborough Theatre, two thoughts competed in my mind. How many staff can there be at the Canadian High Commission? And what must the English theatre-goers whose tickets aren't being comped by Gieck make of it? Johu, indeed, conscious of its obscure subject, the play keeps the audience up to date with a barrage of surtitles identifying the secondary characters. 
Two quick-changing actors alternate as Pierre Trudeau, Stephen Harper, John Crosby, Alan Lawrence, Flora MacDonald, Brian Mulroney, Maureen McTeer, and Jenny Byrne. The play provides relevant, sometimes wry, historical background. What is gained by these crib notes, however, is lost in the distraction of reading about the results of the 1976 PC Leadership Convention or Brian Mulroney's progress through the ranks of the Iron Ore Company of Canada, while the play's action continues below. The surtitles are also unnecessary, as the only characters who matter are the only three the audience is likely to recognize, Clark, Trudeau, and Steve, a not-at-all disguised Stephen Harper. Everyone and everything else is filler Crosby storms in to provide updates on the budget vote count. McDonald flits in and out to remind us what's going on in the real world, the Iran hostage crisis, as it happens, while Mulroney arrives to push for last-minute patronage appointments and Maureen McTeer shows up to stiffen her husband's resolve. Clark is written sympathetically. Among the traits that we are supposed to admire are his priggish earnestness and the fact that he had the grace to lose before he could do anything too conservative. Canada's youngest prime minister may listen to rock music in his office, but only to drown out the fun the Liberal caucus is having celebrating Trudeau's retirement down the hall. He drinks a little, but he doesn't swear. A string of constipated frigs makes it hard to take his emotional outbursts seriously. He's smart but not smart enough to postpone a confidence vote he knows he is going to lose. This Clark is so naive that when Trudeau, taking a break from the liberal revels to check in on his successor, realizes just how guileless he is, he reverses his retirement plans on the spot. Oozing predatory charm and bizarrely wielding a toy chainsaw, Trudeau judges Clark deficient in both cunning and charisma and, crucially, not up to the task of matching René Leffick in a political street fight over the fate of the country. If that's what really changed Trudeau's mind, then he was probably right. Clark's conversation with Trudeau is one of the play's two extended discourses on the nature of power. The other is between Clark and Steve, the future prime minister, appearing anachronistically as a parliamentary errand boy. In an exchange that could have been, Steve explains to Clark that real political power, the only kind worth pursuing, is the kind that changes a country's culture. But change takes time something a prime minister who is willing to lose office rather than exploit the flexibility of parliamentary procedure will never have. Clark indulges his precocious lecturer, alternately amused and appalled by his zeal, but chooses to follow his principles to defeat. Like most of the play, the scene is lively but forgettable. The dialogue is superficially entertaining, but it's also just superficial. The play's understanding of politics is too shallow to say anything important or memorable. Steve's enthusiasm for Margaret Thatcher was probably one of the few references that the London audience caught, but it's cheap literary shorthand, a substitute for character insight. And while we are supposed to sympathize with Clark's commitment to principle over expediency, the play never explains why the principles he chooses matter. Unshakable loyalty to the House's standing orders is a thin thread on which to hang a moral, intentionally or not the play succeeds in showing why Clark failed as prime minister. This Clark simply doesn't understand the qualities that make a good leader. He is overwhelmed by his onstage office, his brown corduroy suit merging with the wood paneling behind him. He literally fades into the woodwork as more successful politicians impose themselves on him. Clark thinks he has to choose between being decent and effective, and that ruthlessness is incompatible with good government. But these aren't opposites, and in politics you rarely have the latter without the former. The meek might inherit the earth, but they won't hold the PMO. 
1979's sharpest though hardly original insight is that the Liberal Party's real success has been the way it has achieved cultural hegemony, a word the play repeatedly uses and misuses. Steve illustrates this for Clark by pointing out the liberal red in the flag that Pearson forced through Parliament. The play doesn't get into all the ways in which the liberals managed to capture the country's major political and cultural institutions, but Steve at least doesn't think the damage is irreversible. If only a conservative prime minister has the mettle to try. It is ironic, then, that a common criticism from conservatives of the real Harper's premiership is that he didn't do enough to remake the country's institutions. There is something to the charge, though if you examine each decision Harper made in context, you will usually find that what is criticized as incrementalism was really going as far as possible under the circumstances, where change could be swift and permanent, like abolishing the wheat board or the firearms registry. That's what he did. But where change risked national or party unity, his reforms were more cautious and limited, more conservative. Looking back, it is easy for today's Steves to focus on what was left undone, but if that means the conservatives still have a sense that there is much still to do, then that's not a bad thing. Parties out of power should be ambitious and impatient. Right now, there is much more public appetite for change than there was at any time during Harper's governments. If the general feeling that the Trudeau government is not living up to its promises and that many of our national institutions are no longer fit for purpose persists when the next conservative government takes over, then today's young Steves will be very pleased with what the new prime minister is able to remove, rebuild, and replace. And I'm sure the real Joe Clark's reaction will remind us, as the play does, why the old progressive conservative remains every progressive's favorite conservative. That was a commentary by Howard Anglin. He's a doctoral student at Oxford University and was previously deputy chief of staff to Prime Minister Stephen Harper. That's it for today's edition of Hub Headlines. We hope you enjoyed the program. To receive all our best commentary and analysis each morning by email, subscribe to The Hub for as little as 25 cents a day. You can do that right now at thehub.ca. Hub Headlines is produced by Alicia Rao. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the gluskin Granovsky Charitable Foundation and the From Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.